Hi, and welcome to the Female Health Podcast. My name is Mary Jo McGuire, owner of MJ Nutrition. I have a degree and master's in nutritional science, and I'm studying to be a nutritional therapist also. I work with women every day who want to lose weight, improve their relationship with food, hack their hormones, regulate their cycle, restore their periods, learn about nutrition for hormonal balance, help women come off the pill, and lots more. This podcast will be a place to talk about all things female health related, from periods, the pill, weight loss, diets, fertility, acne, PMS, and lots, lots more. I hope this platform to be educational and empowering so women can take charge of their health, their hormones, so they can feel and look their best at all stages. Hi, and welcome to the Female Health Podcast. This is Mary Jo, your host. And today I have a fabulous guest on to chat about all things reproductive and fertility health. So um, I have Jessica Burke, the fertility detective, uh, where you will find her on Instagram. I've come across her content and it is absolutely amazing for anyone going through any sort of reproductive issues or fertility issues. It's really uh, gold standard content. And I look at it myself for my own kind of um, support as well. It's really, really amazing. Uh, but basically, she's a reproductive health expert, um, which encompasses things such as acupuncture, clinical, um, clinical and functional medicine, nutrition, and really helps to support women and people in general to get pregnant, stay pregnant and go through that journey with them, which is quite overwhelming for a lot of people. Um, but I'm delighted to have her on because a lot of my clients I work with have PCOS, struggle with fertility, and it's something that I really wanted to get a, a really good uh, guest on to talk with this. So I'm delighted to have you on, Jessica. But uh, thank you so much. And I'll let you introduce yourself and uh, I suppose let people know um, anything else like that I haven't said there about what you do. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're very kind and very um, lovely introduction there as well. Um, yes, it's definitely been a while. I've been working in this field for the last 16 years, um, started back in 2005, and it's just really been a passion project over the years to figure out the root causes, what is stopping someone from getting pregnant and staying pregnant. Um, and in a much more, I think, multifaceted way than is typically done within the traditional field of, you know, seeing your GP, going to fertility clinic. I have found from what I've seen firsthand with clients that, you know, people can come out of that process like a shell of their former self. And I think that's not how it should be. I ideally want you to have maximum health during pregnancy, after pregnancy, leading into the years of parenthood. You know, you don't want to be starting that time of your life already exhausted and frazzled, um, which is too often the case. So uh, yes, um, it's just been a wonderful um, project time to be working on with helping people and doing the TED talk a couple of years ago. Um, and I've recently launched a miscarriage program. There's lots of things I'm working on in the background at the moment. So um, yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing and yes. loving it. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's so, it's nice to have, I suppose, something out there that's a little bit different from maybe the mm -hmm. traditional um, and I'm not, it's not taken away from, you know, the GPs and things like that, but it's just, as you say, people can be feeling so deflated, disheartened and just kind of broken after a visit after that. So it's great mm -hmm. that you bring in other aspects, which we'll get into as we go through the, the conversation. But um, yeah, I suppose the first area that I think is important to chat about um, 
we've talked off air that you know I have PCOS and mm-hmm. on my diagnosis of PCOS in my early 20s one of the first things that was said to me was you may struggle with your fertility when that time comes and mm-hmm. I suppose at that time I was a little bit like oh that's a bit worrying but also early 20s it's not like something that was a big issue for me as, mm-hmm. as well and I suppose from my you know my own work now in this area and working with PCOS clients and having managed my PCOS myself my my thinking on this has totally transformed and I I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that's true but I'd love to get your your thoughts on I suppose fertility and PCOS and maybe the myths around that and yeah how you work with clients maybe with PCOS absolutely well first off there are so many myths about PCOS okay this is a condition which first of all, it's not solely reproductive condition, which is how it's often viewed. It's a metabolic condition. It affects so many aspects of a person's health. So it's not just about if you're trying to have a baby, which is often how it's treated. It's kind of like you have PCOS, ah, don't worry about it, go on the pill for the next 10 years um, and then come back to us when you want to start ovulation induction medications, because that's probably what you're going to need. You know, there's absolutely zero discussion about underlying factors about understanding how this manifested in the first place. It's kind of given to you like this life sentence. And just because you have a predisposition towards a particular set of biological conditions that would lead you to have PCOS or any other health condition, uh, doesn't mean that it's a guarantee. You know, you have way more control, as you now know, over this um, than we are led to believe. And I think when you were referencing earlier just about GPs at the clinics, it's, it's a combination of factors. Number one, they don't have enough time in an appointment, frankly, to delve into these things. Number two, the education isn't there. And in fact, what's on the syllabuses isn't there. I mean, I was speaking to a doctor the other day about this. And she's a good deal younger than me. And she just said, you know, we were never taught any of this. You know, um, we need people to come in and, you know, for training days, talk to GPs. And that was really encouraging for me to hear that, you know, the new generation and understandably so, because if you think of the uh, explosion of, you know, with social media in the last 10 years, I mean, I think really Instagram, it's only been really since 2014, 2015, that it kind of really, you know, people are still posting pictures of granola. (laughs) Now, now it's changed and people can really see the advantages for education and for community and for people not to feel alone with their problems, um, which is how it was years ago. So I think that has made a huge change to the new generation because they can see all the information that's out there. It's not a case of like when I started work, you literally had to, I mean, I remember uh, the excitement of having a load of journals posted to me, you know, actually (laughs) hardback and having to go through them with my highlighter pen to see the latest research, you know, that's just mind blowing. Whereas now there's so much easier access. So yeah, to drill into some of the myths, um, one that's very common that I see is this thinking that, you know, you have to have cystic ovaries to have PCOS because it's in the name. Okay. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, you'd think, you need to have cystic ovaries. Seems obvious. We're thinking that. Yeah, yeah oh, completely understand. <laughs> completely understand. Um, but the thing is, with the Rotterdam criteria, which is the official way of diagnosing it, you yeah. only need two out of three. Mm-hmm. So you might not have cystic ovaries, but if you've raised androgen hormones or if you have irregular cycles, that might be enough yeah. to give you a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So there's that side of things. And then there's the reverse, which is that if you have cysts on your ovaries, you automatically have PCOS. You might not. You might just have polycystic ovaries, yeah. not the syndrome. Mm-hmm. Some of us are just more genetically predisposed to having that, yeah. having more follicles 
You might have to be a bit more careful of going through fertility treatment that you don't overstimulate, but it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. Um, other myths as well, that if your cycle is irregular, it has to be PCOS, not necessarily. Um, and of course, this is where working with someone like yourself, like you need professional support to figure out well, what overlapping conditions are there. Yeah. Because for so many, it's rarely just PCOS. Because yeah. you could have an irregular cycle because you have problems with your thyroid, but often thyroid problems are a background to PCOS. So yeah. the whole thing connects, as you know. Um, and so, yeah, really when you're, and the other huge one is BMI. Oh my God, this idea that you have to have a higher BMI to have PCOS, which is nonsense. You don't have to look very far in the research to find everything out there about yeah. lean PCOS. Yeah. Uh, so that's another huge one. And then that of course plays into the other myth that you, if you lose weight, you'll automatically fix it. Yeah. So I see these poor women on these God awful, you know, low calorie diets and beating themselves up have been treated horribly, usually at some point in the past, by whatever practitioner or family member or whoever it might be. Um, but usually I find the most damaging comments are actually coming from a professional because they take that to heart. They think, okay, oh, so yeah. this, this is my fault. Um, and it really isn't, you know, it's like I said, it's just a set of circumstances that exist in your genetic makeup mm -hmm. that gives you a predisposition, but it doesn't mean it has to happen. Yeah. And that's really so key. And another aspect of it that I find infuriating, which I referred to earlier, is that because it's not just to do with your reproduction, yeah. like there's quite concerning stats out there, you know, with regard to your risk of type two diabetes, yeah. if it's left unchecked or raised cholesterol or even endometrial cancer, yeah. Yeah. you know, and this is just because you're just being shelved, you know, ignored until you decide to come off the pill, which you've invariably been prescribed and hope for the best. Yeah. And usually just all the symptoms come roaring back. Now. Oh, <laughs> so, But it's you know. really poor um, patient care, like just ne neglecting all those other symptoms and not like having a look at maybe why these symptoms are there. And like someone's going in with these symptoms, not like, especially if you're going in, say early to mid, mid twenties and you're looking, I might have I got PCOS or not. And Again, it's just a fertility thing like, oh, you, you know, it's a reproductive issue, but there's so many other symptoms, like you said, and that's what they could be going in for, you know, the, the, the low energy levels, the, the really bad cravings, all the mood swings, just even those things that can affect your day to day life. So, um, yeah, like it's much more empowering to, I suppose, look at it from the point of view that you do is trying to figure out this root cause and manage it that way and not forget about the fertility and anything, but just not thinking that that's the only thing that is to be looked after I guess there's so yeah. many things that you could that are involved and it's not just a reproductive issue it's a metabolic issue and I suppose the thing is it's funny that you refer to a gynecologist all the time but I don't actually think that's the the correct person to be referred to it probably yeah. should be an endocrinologist or you know yeah. someone looking at that but anyway um so when it comes to then fertility and the issues with fertility and PCOS what is the is there stats to show this and or you don't even have to have the stats there but even just in your experience with your your clients who have PCOS does it take longer for them to become pregnant and how do you support them uh, to get pregnant if they have PCOS of course so yes absolutely there are stats showing this there's no question that PCOS is linked to higher risk of fertility issues just for the simple reason that if you are ovulating less frequently yeah. well then there's simply less chances in a given year to get pregnant simple as that you know so it is about um helping with stabilizing the hormones 
A big part of that, as you well know, is the underlying factors, which would be for a good 70% of cases, insulin resistance or problems with how they're managing blood sugar levels is a problem. That doesn't automatically come from more sugar in the diet. I have seen people who have very healthy diets, but they're super stressed and the stress is affecting how they're utilizing sugars um, and how they're being released into the bloodstream. So that's a huge factor as well. Um, I am driven demented by the way, you know, like I said, it's stay on the pill. Then you come off it. Oh, you've no period. Um, or if you have one, it's maybe 60 days apart. And let's just start straight in to the uh, ovulation induction medications such as clomiphene citrate um, or letrozole. And without any prep, like it has been shown that if you're just diving in, like PCOS affects egg quality. And that's because of the background issues of inflammation, of problems of blood sugar regulation, of hormone imbalance in other areas of the body. Um, It's not just about raised testosterone. So when you have something that's so multifaceted, it deserves a proper comprehensive approach. And sadly, as you said, just people aren't going to get that from a quick scan with their gynae or a 10 minute chat with their GP, unfortunately. No, absolutely not. Uh, and like uh, the same, I'm so frustrated with that experience with my clients coming to me, just coming on the pill for 10 years to treat this symptom or treat this issue and then come off it. And then um, they're, they're told they've got fertility issues like and they haven't been they haven't got the chance to actually give their body an opportunity I guess to mm. find out its own balance really and give it what it deserves basically and um, and it does require a bit of work absolutely but there is a lot that you can do and like you say that predisposition it's really about the environment that you're exposed to and that environment doesn't mean you know the, the air around I mean like your food your nutrition your lifestyle stress all of that's our environment and that exposes us then whether I suppose that determines whether this genetic predisposition will be opened up as such um but yeah I, I guess like that's really good to know though for people with PCOS that there is things that you can do and it's finding out this um imbalance and where it comes from is it the insulin is it the stress levels and is it your gut issues uh, like thyroid function as well so I suppose that might bring us to um testing and what and even without PCOS anyone I suppose with issues with fertility what type of blood should they be looking to get done because you know I I find with PCOS the GPs can be even reluctant to measure certain bloods they don't think they're relevant whereas (laughs) ourselves we know how important these can be in piecing the puzzle together and you know whether it's hypothalamic amenorrhea even for example I've often seen that misdiagnosed yes and it's it's crazy and it's just like no like the pill isn't not going to help that either and like I heard a girl the other day say that she because I had been chatting to her and thinking no I don't think you've got PCOS I really think it's HA I really want you to get your bloods done and the GP just said no you don't look like you're too slim to have HA or hypothalamic amenorrhea Mm. so she didn't even want to consider it I just I was like oh my god like there's such a disparity between what like we're saying what they're saying it's and then at the end of the day it's the client or the patient that suffers yeah um, um, and you're right it's, I mean it's there in the clinical research so let's just unpack that a little because there is a lot there and there's a few yeah. things I was thinking of so number one is the time frame so for starters before I just go into the testing 
Yeah. It is important to have that patience because of how long follicular genesis takes. So it takes three to four months for that kind of turnaround for the next batch of eggs to come to the fore, the ones that you hope won't be cystic and will be maturing properly. So it is usually around the four month mark that I, I really see all the interventions kicking in. Um, and now that's assuming that person has the time to work with. Granted, I completely appreciate for those over 40, um, they might take a slightly different approach because they might be preparing for an IVF cycle and they just want to avoid overstimulation, for example. So there's that to consider. So with testing of any kind, it is important to remember that you're not just going to be repeating testing the next month. You know, you can do so, but you're likely to see best shift in the markers about four months later you know, because that's how long it takes for this to kick in. And it is really important to get that into one's mindset, to have that patience, to be consistent uh, with what you're doing and to not just give up at the first hurdle. So in terms of testing, there's a couple of things that can be helpful there. Number one, with a lot of my PCOS clients, I find that follicle tracking scans are really helpful because I tend to see the shifts there before I see them in the blood work. So, for example, if someone has kind of very classical PCOS, a ton of follicles and thinner lining and, you know, they don't know where they are in their cycle. Uh, Just thinking of a woman I had before who hadn't had a cycle in about nine months. And, um, you know, the the first month later, uh, when she had her next scan, you could see the the lining was ticking up just a bit and slightly less cystic activity. Uh, And then by the third month, we could actually, you know, the sonographer said, yes, I can see the lining is now going to hit seven millimeters and it looks like you have a dominant follicle. So even before she first ovulated, she could see those changes, Mm -hmm. which is great because in the blood work, you wouldn't see those changes in the day three bloods, say your FSH, LH, estradiol, et cetera, until after that cycle where she finally ovulated, you know, so it's kind of a a longer window. So that's important to note. And the other thing I wanted to delve into is what you said there, which is so critical uh, about functional hypothalamic amenorrhea or FHA, which so few people are aware of. And I've dealt with a number of cases recently where that was exactly the issue going on. And yet they've been diagnosed as PCOS. And the reasoning for that, just to explain it for those who maybe aren't aware um, or haven't heard of it before, Essentially, um, with PCOS and FHA, yes, you can have cystic ovaries in both. And that is a common feature in both. But it's when you look at the hormones that you see the clues, okay? Because as you well know, if you have kind of flatlining hormones across the board, you've got low estradiol, low FSH, low LH, which, for example, for people would be, let's say your FSH is three and your LH is 1.5 or something. When you're seeing that with estradiol levels under 80, then you're likely looking at FHA, you know, whereas if you're more classical PCOS, that's when you're looking to see the LH is higher than the FSH. Usually let's say if your FSH is a seven, the LH might be 11 or something. Um, And that you then you then have a better idea of how to distinguish between PCOS and FHA. Um, And while there might be overlap in how those conditions are addressed at root cause, generally speaking with the FHA, there's usually more of a component of long-standing chronic stress of some kind, whether it be physical stress, obviously from exercise um, or emotional stress, there's usually something like that going on in the background. So it's really important to make that distinction. (laughs) Otherwise it messes people around in terms of how they're approaching it because for so many with FHA, they don't respond well or at all to climate. (laughs) It just doesn't work for them. Um, And in fact, for PCOS in about 50% of cases, they don't actually ovulate in response to those medications. So when you're being sold this as a, as a quick fix, 
it isn't necessarily. So just to go back over the bloods and testing. So with um, PCOS and in general, I suppose for reproductive health, but more specific to PCOS, Yes, it is helpful to look at blood blood regulation markers, but the thing to bear in mind is that you might still have PCOS and those markers can show up normal. So yes, you can do fasting glucose. Yes, you can do your HbA1c, which um, is a marker that that measures blood sugar tolerance over time. Um, Some cases you might be lucky enough to get the fasting insulin, but not many places do it, certainly that I've seen in Ireland. Um, So you're working with what you've got and critically as well, for PCOS, do not forget the cardiovascular markers because that's a big part of the puzzle um, or problem, I suppose, with it being a metabolic condition. So you do need to know your cholesterol, triglycerides. You can throw in fibrinogen, although that's a bit more complex of a test. Um, it's part of the blood clotting matrix. Um, homocysteine is huge as well. You, you need a full picture and inflammation markers like C-reactive protein. Um, that would definitely be for a PCOS picture person, what I would be pretty keen on them doing yeah. along with obviously your day three and 21 bloods as well. Okay. So then just for then a general person, would it just be the day three, 21 bloods that you, that that's what you'd be looking for with those if they're struggling with fertility? Yes. But with the addition of thyroid panel, which thyroid. sorry, I should have added in there too for PCOS, PCOS, you kind of have to test everything yeah. um, because it, it's such a common, like a background feature of subclinical hypothyroidism is very common. So, but for a thyroid panel, to be clear, the standard thyroid function test only checks for TSH and T4. You need your free T3 and ideally both thyroid antibodies, thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin. Um, Testing for reverse T3, it's actually very expensive and tricky to do in Ireland anyway. Um, You can do it in other places abroad. And that could just give an indication of if you're stressed, usually how your body is choosing to store the hormone. Um, So that can give extra clues. So yeah, throwing in the thyroid um, and of course, um, the importance of checking prolactin levels as well you know, because you need to see if they're too high. Okay. Just on the thyroid there, it's, um, they have like, is, do you believe the range should be, is there a a good Mm. range like between one and two, they say, but like what's your, that's for TSH. Well, what I've seen clinically and what is definitely noted in the research is you really need the TSH below 2.5. Yeah. Um, and the reasoning for that is because if it goes above that, you are higher risk of miscarriage. Okay. Plain and simple, not to mention obviously problems with implantation as well. And because the range is set and, you know, no disrespect to any GPs out there, but because the range is so broad going up to like 4.55, if you're just taking a glance at a, a sheet load of results, you know, your eye is usually tracking to where there's something in red or a H for high or L for low. So you could scan through bloods as someone interpreting them and say, oh, no, you're, you're fine. You're grand. Yeah. Yeah. When you're not fine, <laughs> you have subclinical hypothyroidism, um, which means you may not necessarily have overt symptoms that you think of, but often symptoms are missed. Um, and that is something that has to be investigated further because you need to know is it because of thyroid antibodies, in which case it's Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune condition you're yeah. looking at, which is a totally different approach, or is it kind of your bog standard uh, hypothyroidism where it's just your TSH is being thrown off and often that can recover by the next month, you know, if retested, it could be stress or something going on stress. in your life. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, with your approach with Hashimoto's, I, I know mm-hmm. we're kind of going off track, but it is quite common as well. And mm-hmm. I just... Um, uh, my history I had the Graves disease the other one so I was the autoimmune yeah. component as well mm-hmm. I'm just curious um do you uh, with your client or do you leave it up to them 
to go down the medication route of levotiroxine or do you go down re- reducing stress on the gut and supporting gut health or what kind mm. of approach do you use I suppose maybe it might depend on time does it Yes, it, it's often an amalgamated approach. And, and just for the benefit of those, this engraves is the other end where you're more hyper and you're looking more at the thyroid receptor antibodies. Um, but yes, it's it's just that it's more common to be underactive. So it's not to discount anyone out there listening who oh, might have yeah, graves. Yeah. <laughs> we hear, we know it's a very difficult thing to deal with as well. Um, but yes, it's usually a combined approach because, for example, in the research, especially if you're talking about IVF, Altroxin in certain cases can be helpful to those if it can keep the TSH under control, even if there's the background issue of um, antibodies, because that might be controlled for by other things, such as maybe steroid medication. But of course, that's only ever a short term stopgap measure. Yeah. You know, it's purely to get someone through pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and that's fair enough. And as it should be, because obviously, yes, it can save someone from a pregnancy loss. So I'm cool with that. Yeah. But long term, it's not a great plan. <laughs> long term, we do definitely need to delve deeper. Um, I found some interesting stuff in the research about non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So we talk a lot uh, online. I'm sure people have seen it. And, and particularly when it comes to PCOS, there's huge stuff out there online at the moment where you don't need to give up gluten and dairy. And I would agree. Yeah. Yes, across the board, a blanket prescription is not required. Yeah. However, we do need to look at the individual. Absolutely. And in certain cases, just because someone might have actually had the testing, let's say for the transglutaminase, and they know they don't have celiac disease, but yet they're dealing with persistent issues, whether it be Hashimoto's, Graves, or other inflammatory conditions. It might be something to explore um, looking at curtailing gluten intake for a few weeks um, and then do challenge tests, you know, just to see what's going on, um, because that can definitely be a contributing factor. You know, it's just about the protein, the gliadin, the body, you know, basically gets confused and thinks it's a pathogen. Um, and that can then lead to inflammation. So that would certainly be an area to look at, of course, for others who might be sensitive in a different way, they might be more sensitive to lactose. So, you know, their dairy intake might need to change. And of course, sugar across the board in, you know, high quantities, or certainly something um, intake of sugar that isn't being balanced out by protein and fats. Because remember, the, the human body can view a banana in the same way as a chocolate bar. Yeah. If, you know, if we're not consuming protein fats alongside it. Yeah. Um, so that can definitely have an impact on those conditions as well. Okay. Yeah. I think what you said there as well, it's uh it's the personalized approach and that's so so important. Um not everyone's gonna meet the criteria, same criteria and it's not a blanket size fit or blanket size approach. It's not a one size fits all. So really looking at the individual circumstances is so, so key with any sort of issue, whether it's fertility or PCOS, anything really across the board. Um, I suppose um, we'll move on now to diet and lifestyle and the role that the it plays in Obviously, it has an impact in PCOS, but not even just that, just in general, support, supporting your body to prepare for fertility and healthy, like regular ovulation. And like, even if you don't have PCOS, like you, some women can, may just skip ovulation because of a very stressful month or something. So, um, you know, what can in, what's your thoughts on the role of diet and lifestyle in this um, in this journey? Mm-hmm. It's massively important, um, but it's also a more nuanced thing. Okay. You know, think of every magazine you've ever picked up in your life where you read about some diet or something that was supposedly going to make all the difference. 
Um, and they're always trying to distinguish themselves, aren't they? So, you know, you've got the keto and the paleo and the vegan, and then there's the intermittent fasting and everyone's right. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's the key thing to look out for straight away. Those who are very keen on being right. Um, you know, I'm the first to say to any client I'm dealing with, I learn from people every day. You know, there's always surprises. There's always things that don't add up exactly the way you'd expect, and that's because we're all unique and that's what makes things interesting. It's why I don't get bored in my work, but it also means when you're talking about diet and lifestyle, why you have to get intuitive. You have to start listening to yourself and your body um, and tuning in more to, okay, is this working for me or not? I mean, we just touched on, for example, talking about gluten. So I had a client years ago now who um, had been advised that before coming to see me and she was really getting worse. So we were trying to dig deeper and it turned out she actually had an intolerance to grass family foods. So all the gluten-free foods she was eating, including rice and oats were messing her up (laughs) completely. Um, So she needed a very different approach. So I think that's really key to note is that you do have to listen to yourself first. So I think uh, journaling is a great idea for anyone to start doing like a food and mood journal. It's not hard. Uh, We're all used to tracking our lives online anyway. There's apps you can use if you want to. And that can be extremely helpful just to start getting a gauge of, okay, well, is it the timing of what I'm eating as opposed to just what I'm eating? Because that's really important and very commonly overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose if I was to give, um, shall we say, generic advice, but yeah. that's as helpful as yeah. I can make it uh, from what I've seen. Yes, there are a number of things that you can look at doing. So if you're looking at PCOS, I mean, there's Harvard research that's been done on that, looking at those with anovulatory cycles. And to their surprise, they found that actually having higher animal protein consumption was a problem. So traditionally speaking, for anyone with PCOS, you're told, bring on the protein, the more the better, and that's fine. And I'm not for a second disputing the importance of protein, but the form it comes in is important. So in that research, were they saying that you to become plant-based? No, they were not. So I know often that's what people hear. They go, oh my God, I have to give up everything. No, you don't. even just a 5% daily increase in plant protein intake made a massive difference. So what does that mean in practice? That means simply you're making a bolognese, throw in a tin of quee lentils. You're adding a bit of fiber, a bit more plant protein, but it'll still taste meaty and you're still going to have the improvements, hopefully, in your overall health and hormone balance. So the protein side of things is important. Essential fats is also critical. And the type of fats... Um, they also found that research, even just one trans fat containing product a day. So I'm talking about one donut, one pastry, one croissant, um, could make a big difference to outcome for egg quality, which is pretty insane. Um, and obviously not just talking to the context of fertility, which I know is my area, but for PCOS in general, um, if you're talking about the balance of fats, it's really critically important. So that means in your daily diet, obviously you can get in more of the like baseline omega-3. So let's say from, um, chia seeds and flax seeds and then oily fish if you're getting high quality fish otherwise take a supplement um or if plant-based take one derived from algae and um and then obviously the monounsaturated fats from avocado and olive oil which were found to be very beneficial as well um if you're combining if you're making sure to get regular intake of the protein and fats your cravings for sugar will naturally diminish and i think that's something that people don't fully understand And particularly with the intermittent fasting buzz at the moment, um, which I think has caused huge problems for many people. I actually had a client last year who's a doctor herself, 
And this was her day. She wouldn't eat until about half one, yeah. having of course had at least two coffees before that time. Yeah. She then was working nonstop in clinic. She would then go to train, exercise, hard, intense exercise at 8 p.m. at night, would come home and would then have her dinner at 9.30. Oh, wow. I mean, talk about back to front. Yeah. And obviously she's a medic, you know, and she was saying, no, intermittent fasting. And I said, look, but I mean, have you looked at the research? Most of the research studies are based on men yeah. <laughs> or postmenopausal women. So it's not taking into account at all our monthly cycle and natural rhythm, um, which is a real thing. We're not making it up. <laughs> so you use circadian rhythm, obviously, for night and day you know, hence why we're supposed to actually be asleep at night. So that's why it can be very tough on those work shift work. And I do hugely empathize. I saw that again with another um, doctor who just because of her work would have to work nights and would mess her up before her IVF cycle. It was really tough. So we do empathize. Um, but there's also the infradian rhythm. So, you know, what's going on in your monthly cycle is very different to a guy who's yeah. testosterone pumping out each day. Yeah. It's a very different pattern. So this idea of starving yourself of calories, um, and just cramming them in to an eight hour window is not something I'd really advocate for. If someone is very keen on the idea, you know, you can generally get away with it a bit better in the earlier phase of your cycle, but you are going to really mess things up in the second phase. And I've seen that happen to people. I've seen over the years, I've actually worked with a lot of pro athletes and, uh, you know, cause as you can imagine with training, they'd often have lost their period. Um, but in the midst of that, there'd be PCOS as well. And there was one lady I remember training with, or that I've worked with, <laughs> with her training. She had, um, you know, she was consuming copious amounts of animal protein. I mean, like steak for breakfast, you know, <laughs> it was meat all day long. And uh, her problem for her particular sport is that she needed to be able to make weight. She had to be able to cut weight to compete. And she was finding it impossible to shed weight. And I said, of course, because your body is completely stressed out and doesn't trust you anymore and has decided, no, we're going to keep this weight for a rainy day. <laughs> so um, so through working with her on her diet, she did manage to do so and very easily. Um, it's just about changing up a few things, but being consistent with the changes you make. So if you're talking about diet and lifestyle, I think that's critical as well, yeah. because so often people try something for a week and then go yeah, and then they forget about it. Yeah. Um, consistency will win at the end of the day. Yeah, no, really good advice there. So I think you said to sum up the role of diet and lifestyle, like listen to your, yourself and um, food and mood journal is a really good idea. And um, for PCOS, obviously the right types of proteins, getting more plant proteins in there. And I'd be an advocate for that. I, li I like animal proteins. I think they're very nutrient dense, but not just by eating more plants doesn't mean you've got to cut them out. And I just think that's what a lot of people can, can hear, like you said. Yes. So really good advice that you gave there. And I've been saying the same thing, just adding them into your normal dinners is great. And um, yeah, no, that's really good advice there. I suppose the next area, and um, we'll sum it up quick enough, is stress and fertility. But this is like a huge part of it I'd probably say it's more important so not even probably it is more important I think than looking at um your nutrition and life and things like that it's stress is huge and anyone who's going through any sort of fertility issues is most likely in a chronic state of stress because they're so as you said earlier on like desperate to get you know this sorted and their body is obviously there is some component of stress in the body that it's in this state at the moment so 
to try and tell someone to stop stressing is I hate saying it and I hate it so much. I feel like such a patronizing person, but it's such an important part of the work that I do. And I'm sure you bring that into your work as well. But to talk briefly about how it can impact your fertility, uh, whether again, PCOS or not, because I don't want this to be just for PCOS people because there's people who listen to this who don't have PCOS and a fertility issue. So just briefly, the role of stress, how it can impact um so yes it is important to avoid overwhelm okay and I think that's where a lot of stress stems from because people are trying to do all the things you know they're trying to excel in their work they might be dealing with family stressors an ailing parent they're moving house renovating their home they're you know there's always so much else going on in the background secondary to what they might be dealing with to do with fertility or PCOS Um, and of course when you think of the age demographic of people you know uh, with trying to conceive maybe being a bit older in their 30s and 40s that's why they've got so much else going on so it is important to avoid getting stressed about being stressed okay that's that's not going to help anyone and it starts very simply So it starts with number one, identifying what area, what are the key areas really causing the stress for you? So I've seen many people over the years leave their job. You know, they've found a a different uh, role because they they identify that that was their root source um, or distancing themselves from toxic people in their lives, whatever it might be. It's not obviously, you know, just to do with diet and and lifestyle. That isn't the automatic cause of stress or just the problems that you're dealing with with PCOS or fertility. So that's key. Um, then getting the basics, right? If you want to minimize stress, if you're not getting proper sleep, if you're not just resting enough and resting in and of itself, I think has become a skill we've all had to relearn <laughs> because, you know, when I think back to Celtic Tiger times, it was a, a badge of honor to say that you'd had four hours sleep. Yeah. You know, and you were just keeping going, going strong. And Nowadays, I think people have realized, actually, that's just silly. <laughs> that's, that's not going to help you in any shape or form. So getting the foundations in place as well. Granted, I appreciate for some people who are very stressed, they suffer with insomnia. So I understand that. Um, but that's where the self-care during the day comes into play, whether it be taking a nap, if you can, um, whether it be just even sitting in the car before you get out of the car in the day for 10 minutes and just breathing. Um, it seems too simple to be impactful, but again, there's research showing that it can definitely help. Yeah, absolutely. It's just those small little moments during the day, just a bit of breath work, slowing down and making a little, I like to get like my own clients to just do 20 minutes of something for themselves every day. So 20 minutes isn't a huge amount of time. It's less than a program on, on TV. Like you could get something done for yourself in that length of time. And it could be whatever, a simple walk in nature, Uh, coloring books or something a lot of my clients are really enjoying at the moment and they're really helpful for just lowering stress Um, but whatever it is unique to you like do something for yourself that is just going to help hopefully lower your stress hormones and when again it does come down to consistency one day a week isn't going to help I guess but doing something a bit more consistent for yourself is is quite beneficial I think and so finally I'm just going to touch on what I I did want to touch very briefly on um, supplements um is there particular ones that you recommend or do we are they the be all and end all or what's your (laughs) thoughts (laughs) i definitely feel that they're very important and it's for a number of reasons um as a quick backdrop you know over the years like going back maybe 12 to 14 years ago 
I looked very in depth into the whole area of supplements because I'm what I call an open-minded cynic. So I know that there's a lot of people out there to make a quick book. I know that people are taken advantage of. And what I found in what I looked at was that there's huge differences in quality between various manufacturers. And invariably, and this is really key for people to understand, the brands that you have heard the most about, the ones that are heavily marketed, don't tend to be the best quality ones. Mm -hmm. That's what I've seen in my experience. They're putting their funds into the marketing and not into the raw materials of their product. Whereas those that are more science-based and typically, you know, these are professional grade products that a practitioner you might be working with would be aware of. They actually put their funding into the research and into the product, depending on the practitioner to get the news out there. So that's just a key distinction to make, because honestly, it is a difference in terms of supplements between a fast food restaurant or a Michelin star. And when particular brands that you would go for then, or do you mind me asking, is there particular ones that you would recommend? Mostly American or German brands that I've found. So there wouldn't be just that many that I'd use and learned in the UK. And the reason I found that like going back a number of years, like the American brands were quicker to act, for example, on the research of having good quality folate. So, you know, having the methylfolate and the research on that, very few, and I won't name obviously the specific brands that would be on sale in Ireland or the UK, but very few of them had uh, made that change. And so there was, that's why you'd have to go to look to the American research brands, of which there are many, Um, uh, a lot of them with research in the name, like Thorin Research, Allergy Research, Biotics Research, uh, I could be here all day naming them, but, and indeed there's some great brands from Germany as well. So, um, but for the professional grade brands, a lot of the time people aren't seeing them in their local health shop, so they're not necessarily aware. And then there's the dosing. And if you're not checking the research, if you're not aware, I mean, how many people, if you want to talk about a supplement that everyone should be taking, but is massively important for PCOS and fertility, vitamin D, as we've all heard of a million times over at this point. But what's really critical is I have seen, and particularly in the last year because of COVID, um, understandably labs are less reluctant or more reluctant to test for it because they say we're all deficient. And I'd say, yeah, well, we're not just the general population. These are people who are trying to conceive or dealing with gynecological condition. And I have seen countless people uh, attend who were taking vitamin D diligently and their levels were still deficient. Okay. Because either of the brand they were taking or the dose they were taking, because it's not just about taking the standard RDA, is it? You need to know your ideal dosage based on your blood work. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example of how when you're talking about supplements, it's rarely just about um, going out and taking something generic, unfortunately. Yeah. But again, going back to things that people can do, um, one thing that I think is massively important, and I remember listening to um a full one hour podcast about this topic. And the only thing discussed was magnesium. (laughs) That was the only thing being discussed for a full hour. And people would be thinking, how could you talk about it for that long? Trust me, you can. Um, All the different types and forms. And the reason I bring that up is because it is so um, very common that people are deficient. It does not show up well in blood work. So please do not trust looking up blood work. Like 1% of it shows up there. It's really going to show up in the tissues and it's more based on symptom analysis. But if you're having problems with being chronically stressed, your magnesium is going to deplete very quickly. And where are we getting that from? Usually from greens, from nuts and seeds, which maybe people aren't eating as much of, or 
if they have problems with stress affecting their digestion, yeah. then they're just not going to absorb it as well. Yeah. So I find that, yes, magnesium is a good thing to take, particularly at nighttime if you're having problems with sleep. Um, because it's going to affect your health in a good way overall. Also great, and there's particular forms you can take if you've constipation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that can help to to relax things, you know. Yeah. So is your forms glycinate or citrate or? Is- yeah. So if you're talking about well, obviously oxide is really poorly absorbed, yeah. so that's why it's added to laxatives for that very reason. Yeah. But no, if you really want to get into the tissues, then yes, glycinate, citrate would be better forms. Malate because uh, the malic acid is good for muscle cramps. Yeah. Um, so that can be good for PMS in the kind of luteal phase um, because for some people their luteal phase just goes on and on and on Mm -hmm. uh, for those of PCOS so that can be good and obviously in combination with other things so if you're talking about trying to conceive yes um, a good B complex with uh, the addition of folate I'm not keen on when I see people people taking high dose folic acid by itself I mean, that's just lunacy. Um, all the B vitamins work together. Yeah. And in fact, looking at blood results for client the other day, sure enough, her folic acid was off the charts. Her B12 was deficient. Yeah. yeah. She actually was showing signs of pernicious anemia. So <laughs> you definitely need to keep track of, of everything. They work in a balance with each other. Yeah. So it is meant, not ideal to take it that way. Agree. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So the last thing is acupuncture and its role mm-hmm. in um. I suppose, supporting anyone going through, whether it's, yeah, again, fertility issues, like we would, in general, PCOS, or even IVF, things like that. What is your, do you, um, yeah, what's the research around this? I don't know much about this because I'm not an acupuncturist, but I'm just interested to hear. And for my own clients, um, I have been kind of suggesting that they seek alternative support alongside you know, stress management and lifestyle changes and things like that, uh, based on a little bit of research that I've done on it. But I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this. Well, there is actually a good deal of research that's been done on it now. I mean, the World Health Organization have an 87-page document about acupuncture and all the things that it can support. So I think where the problem stems from with acupuncture is the language used. And I mean, I'm coming from the traditional paradigm, you know, my primary degree was law. So when I was studying acupuncture, all this talk about chi and all this stuff didn't really sit well uh, with my line of thinking. And um, when I delved into it deeper, turns out, would you believe, back in the 16th century, um, because this is me needing to know why, um, (laughs) some fella from the Netherlands had traveled over to China and came back and was translating the text and essentially this whole thing about meridians and chi they were really talking about the nervous system yeah but it just wasn't communicated in that way because you think about it we only it's only the last 400 years we've really understood things properly in medicine um so chinese medicine is coming from more an empirical evidence point of view you know you do something and see what the cause and effect is which would be different from obviously um, our form of you know research and how we'd work things in sort of a Western approach. Yeah. Um, but they can work very well together. Yeah. So what I found on the areas that it can excel, like is acupuncture going to fix a bit of D deficiency? Hell no. <laughs> okay. So let's just get that clear. Um, and I've sometimes seen people over the years who are very keen that they want to do acupuncture. No, I won't look at anything else. I'm like, well, then you're making a mistake. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an all encompassing approach, Agreed. but areas that I've seen acupuncture truly excel in like above and beyond even medications or nutrients. Number one um, would actually be for PCOS. <clears throat> 
because of its ability to bring blood flow. Think yeah. of it just the mechanics of it. You're putting needles in the belly area. You're actually bringing the body's focus to that point and circulating uh, blood flow to the ovaries where you want it to go to help the nourish, uh, nourish the egg follicles for, during the developmental stage. Um, it's also fantastic for thin lining. And of course, for so many with PCOS, that's another problem that they have is that even if they do ovulate, is the lining there to support implantation? Um, and I've seen that literally proven, as it were, in as best as it can be, short of having also a control group patient who had sham acupuncture needles used. But I'm just thinking of clients over the years who they had used everything in the toolbox in terms of medication to thicken their lining that hadn't worked. And then when we brought acupuncture into the mix alongside it, suddenly their lining jumped up, you know? So, and if you look at the research as well, like there's no question it affects parts of the brain, which typically can only be touched by general anesthetic, which is incredible to think that it can actually have that big of an impact on our perception, how we feel pain. So in the research, I'm talking MRI scans of the brain, live scans, they found that acupuncture points in particular combinations can actually help to switch off parts of the brain that would receive pain signals by comparison to say having an epidural, which is blocking the signal from getting to the brain. It's a totally different mechanism of action. And yes, it's simply working on the nervous system and endocrine um, balance and neurotransmitters. It's that simple. It's it's we don't have to talk in terms of chi, although I fully respect yeah. the language. It's just you need to translate the language so others can understand it. Understand. Agreed. Okay. Now that's really really good to know, and it's good uh, in combination with everything else. It's a really supportive or some a tool that you can go to as well. And the fact that you have found such good positive results with it is really good as well. So, um, thank you, Jessica, so much for coming on. That has been truly amazing. Honestly, like I've got lots from that. I'm sure anyone with PCOS fertility issues or in general, who are just curious to learn more about this will have got a lot from this. Um, really appreciate you coming on and sharing all that amazing knowledge. Is there anything you want to say to end the podcast or well first of all thank you for having me and secondly yes I think it's so important for anyone out there listening to this to have faith in what's possible for their health and for their fertility I mean we've all been there you know I know you talked about your PCOS story I certainly wasn't born this way being all healthy and knowing this information I had to learn and once you know that that information is there And you know that there are the success stories there that we're not making this up that allows you to have faith in the process to be consistent um, and to have belief in yourself and the quality of life that you could be able to lead love it that's so good but um if anyone wants to find you they get you at the fertility detective is that right yeah we're doing courses and the miscarriage um course is that right yes i'm just finishing that up actually um this week for the the autumn run of it Mm -hmm. i probably won't be running it again until january because i'm working a lot of other projects in the background as well so it's going to be a very busy few months um and a very exciting january 2022 so yes uh, anyone who's interested get on the wait list if you want to be informed super and this is for obviously like for women who um 
are struggling who have had miscarriages or would would anyone bef- who ha- hasn't had one benefit from this or is it just for yeah so I, I if you're talking about the miscarriage program yeah. yes I have a number of people doing yeah. the program who haven't had a miscarriage yeah. because of course there's huge overlap yeah. you know anybody who wants to get pregnant also wants to stay pregnant they yeah. don't want to suffer a miscarriage um but yes amongst the projects I'll be working on there'll be things to be more specific um to to just those dealing with uh, unexplained fertility, PCOS, etc., mm-hmm. um, and of course the the sperm side of things as well. So there's, okay. yeah, lots to come. Okay, really exciting. Well, definitely um, check out Jessica's page because there's got so much content there, um, which it, it really aligns with a lot of what I say. But there's more there, obviously, in terms of the acupuncture and other things that you do, and um, which is amazing. So again, thank you so much for having for coming on. Sorry for having me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on and um it was really good to speak to you and yeah i'll be back next week with another episode take care everyone thanks for listening